Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. Today's episode, we're going to be talking to Shelby Chestnut from the Transgender Law Center. Before we get to that interview, um, I'm going to be doing some readings from a book called Get Up, Stand Up, Uniting Populists, Energizing the Defeated, and Battling the Corporate Elite by Bruce E. Levine. And also from uh, Christiana Spenz, Shooting Hipsters, Rethinking Dissent in the Age of PR. From the back cover of that book, uh, it says, In an age of PR, public protests and other forms of dissent have lost their meaning and impact. The intense media interest in rioting and political violence, as well as an existing obsession with youth culture, have led to an oversaturation and misrepresentation of what these movements are about. Political protests have become a pantomime where activists are always villains, and therefore the politics of these groups are routinely ignored. By identifying the instances in which publicity has helped and hindered a wide range of movements, shooting hipsters will find out how dissenting groups can thrive and survive in a media-saturated age, as well as describing the common ways they can be undermined. So I found this book pretty fascinating, and um, so I'll begin with the introduction from that book, The Romance of Dissent. Revolution in all its manifestations has long captured the public imagination, as well as those of artists, writers, and musicians. Wordsworth wrote his famous lines not about first love, but about the French Revolution. His famous lines being, Bliss was it that dawned to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. Wordsworth, 1888. Romanticism was more generally about the revolution and anti-establishment ideals, just as much, if not more, than passionate love. Arcadian nature and blissful sublime, the subject of sonnets, novels, songs, and paintings. Revolution has been glorified and admired in the arts, traditionally associated with the brave young people and spectacular change. These days, the romantic notion of revolution is still at the core of most dissenting groups operating in the West. From student protests against education cuts in 2010, to the Tea Party movement, from the uh, provisional IRA to Al-Qaeda. Anonymous has borrowed its imagery, and particularly its mass, from Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, itself drawing upon the tales of attempted revolution past and Guy Fawkes' part in it. While the Occupy movement has been supported by a vast story of creative projects, from rousing rhetoric to books um, of writing inspired by the movement, Occupy have also turned vacant buildings into pop-up libraries and created political spaces such as the Bank of Ideas in London, as well as making digital films, comic books, and um, subvertisements. It is difficult, in fact, to imagine a revolution without art, or at least this notion of romantic spirit that persists throughout the centuries. Dissent is also very necessarily public. The point of much of the civil resistance in this uh, regard is to communicate a message, whether that is through the propaganda of the deed, an idea attributed to Russian anarchists in the 19th century and the foundation of modern terrorism, or through protest songs and literature. Where the French Revolution had Wordsworth and uh, Delacroix, uh, we have CNN and the photographs in the tabloids. The French Revolution also sparked in its fair share of anti-revolutionary propaganda, in England particularly, such as the um, Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution, 
But over time, the image of revolution from the Romantics has persisted more than any such opposing views of that era. It is, of course, too early to know how a dissent in our times will appear in the history books. It could be that the subversive voices in our literature become more well-known uh, with time. At that moment, however, at the moment, however, uh, the very powerful mainstream media seems to lower these voices to a faint whisper with sensationalism and the politics of anxiety. One thing is true, though. Whether it's effective these days or not, dissent is a long tradition of courting the public through media and art. <clears throat> the media and artists benefit from this relationship. Wordsworth got a poem. Delacroix got a masterpiece how, um, now housed in the Louvre. And uh, CNN got ratings. When a terrorist attack happens, everyone watches the news and scrolls through photographs online. People watch with fascination, outrage, and sadness. But more importantly, they watch. The attacks on the Twin Towers in New York during 9-11 were astonishing because, as was often repeated at the time, and since, it was like a film. There was no accident. The members of Al-Qaeda hijacked the plane made sure that there would be a time lapse between the two attacks so that the press would be assembled for the second attack for maximum exposure. People learned of the attacks through the same loop of footage on every channel, repeating over and over again in playback. It was impossible for ordinary people to escape from, attached as Western civilizations are to their televisions, no matter how far they were from the action. If it bleeds, it leads, as the old adage goes, and even nonviolent dissent can cause a spectacle that people can fixate upon. These themes and feelings that captured the minds of the romantic poets, rebellion, pride, excitement, ecstasy, continue to draw new audiences and new protesters. But these days it is the news channels and the tabloids that are reaping the rewards. The romantics and the revolutionaries won their battle in a symbolic sense at least, but overwhelmingly in recent years, those various anti-establishment groups whose protests or fight the status quo have not won theirs. The education cuts and rises in tuition fees still happened. Northern Ireland is still in the United Kingdom, even if, it, even if inequalities between the Catholic and Protestants are less so, and the British Army is no longer patrolling the streets. A peace process and a compromising seat in government is usually the best that a revolutionary can hope for these days. Being damned as terrorists and locked in Guantanamo are among the worst. The demands of dissenters are rarely granted, whatever their cause, although the desires of the tabloids are routinely accomplished. The traditional assumption has been that publicity is always beneficial to dissenters, but it's simply not true. Oscar Wilde was wrong when he quipped, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Why is this? Why do highly publicized protests and dissent have little political effect, or only a damaging one, in spite of their media attention? For a star, sensationalistic press tends to focus on violence and punishment rather than the politics, making nonviolent and legal dissent difficult to publicize. This, combined with the over-reliance of dissenting groups on tactics of public protest and disruption, making groups vulnerable to infiltration, sabotage, and the unpredictable behavior of rogue dissenters. Violence is usually a bad PR for dissenting groups, even if it can attract attention to the cause, it is not the right kind of attention, and it tends to result in, this, in the dissenting group being termed terrorist or criminal, rather than a legitimate political protest. 
Violence is very easily framed by the media as a moral, moral failing, especially if the violence is against civilians or property. Even when a group is not violent, the media and authorities tend to conflate these two kinds of civil resistance, legal and illegal, which is potentially undermining for legal and peaceful groups whose image will be tarnished. If the current political spectrum has been pushed to the right, if the Overton window or the range of ideas of public will support is biased towards the right, then anything remotely left-wing will be depicted as impossibly radical. Normal, reasonable things that used to be everyday and taken for granted, public ownership of railways and electricity, for example, are painted as unthinkable, and unthinkable things such as bank bailouts and bonuses, participation in foreign wars, and so on, are painted as reasonable. The reason that these things are really problematic for dissenting groups, however, is that many of the groups themselves are naive about their relationship with PR and the media, as well as overly dependent on tactics such as public protest. The book will explain why certain PR strategies work better than others, findings that sometimes avoiding publicity and using tactics other than protest is the best form of political action to take. Relying on the mainstream media to accurately represent a group's actions and ideas is naive. So I gave you a little bit of a taste of um, Shooting Hipsters by Christiana Spenz. Now I'll go to our interview with Shelby Chestnut from the Transgender Law Center. Before we get to the interview, we're going to be having a song by Ryan Casata, We're the Cool Kids. All the songs feature on this episode by transgender artists. So please enjoy We're the Cool Kids. And then we'll be going to our interview.
welcome to the Truth to Power show. Uh, I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and this is Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, I'm here with Shelby Chesna, who served as the Director of Community Organizing and Public Advocacy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project, ABP, for five years prior to joining Transgender Law Center. At ABP, Shelby was um, uh, worked on a city, state, and national level advocating for the rights and protections of LGBTQ survivors of violence. For over a decade, Shelby has been organizing with uh, LGBTQ people, people of color, and low-income uh, communities to address violence, promote access to resources, and affect local policy change that is for and by the people most impacted by oppression. Shelby is a gender non-conforming, two-spirit, mixed-race organizer who has called Brooklyn their home for over the past seven years, but always draws on their Montana roots for uh, country and sensibility and a dry sense of humor. So thank you. Thank you for being here, Shelby. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. So why don't we start off with just talking a little bit about your, uh, your own story, um, you know, uh, a little bit of where you were born and uh, where you grew up. So go ahead. Yeah, I was born in Shelby, Montana, the day that uh, Ronald Reagan was elected president. Uh huh. My family always jokes that they uh, didn't vote because my mom was getting birth, and they wouldn't have voted for Ronald Reagan if they could. Uh-huh. Um, and I grew up there till I was in like high school, and then I ended up moving to Minnesota with my family, uh, who relocated there. And I think like a lot of people sort of organizing and political moments, they were politicized in college. Um, I went to a small liberal arts college in Ohio um, called Antioch College, um, whose motto is be ashamed to die until you've won some victory for humanity. Um, And it was there that I really saw the intersections of transness and queerness and race and the ways that I think queer and trans people of color had been really pushed to the margins, but also I think were the most effective in in leading the change that they needed in their lives. Um, And then from there, you know, I think maybe didn't decide, but was drawn in the direction that like community organizing was something that I was really passionate about. Never thought in my wildest dreams it would be what I made a living doing. And then about 10 years ago, I moved to New York to study at the new school um, at the Milano nonprofit public policy program. And, you know, had done a number of sort of organizing gigs in in non-paid roles for years Mm -hmm. um, and had done some in paid. And then I think after graduate school, was really fortunate to sort of enter into a world of being paid to organize and that's what brought me to TLC and it's what keeps me in New York and I think you know in this moment we're seeing so many people just highly politicized for the first time in their life and Mm -hmm. I think it's like while the state of the world is a bit frightening in in many regards I think the ways that people are awakening to their own possibilities of leadership is just really profound. I think it's very important to recognize that um you know, the rights and the uh, community of transgender community kind of speaks to a larger, uh, you know, we're talking about rights, human rights, and the ability to express oneself and the ability to have the right to have um, one's own identity. So if we talk a little bit about uh, the two-spirit and gender non-conforming and what kind of that means to you and what that means to the community, uh, specifically the two-spirit um, thing in your bio. 
Can you repeat that question? Are the two-spirit and gender non-conforming? It says in your bio that you are concerned mm -hmm. with uh, what does two-spirit mean? And yeah, yeah. Um, two-spirit <clears throat> is typically a term that indigenous or native people use uh -huh. um, to refer to two different things. It's sort mm -hmm. of a both-and, but it's one's gender identity or sexual orientation. I think it kind of oh, okay. depends on the spectrum where you are. Uh -huh. um, in, in my instance, I used it as sort of a more of an umbrella term for LGBT people who are native identified. So okay. my family on my father's side is Native American and my mom's side is white. Okay. Yeah. So now with the Transgender Law Center, I understand that they uh, translate organization. I plug from the site now, uh, advocating self determination for all people, uh, grounding leader legal expertise and committed to racial justice. Uh, TLC employs a variety of community driven strategies to keep transgender and gender nonconforming people alive, thriving, and fighting for liberation. Mm -hmm. So, if you talk a little bit about what you're doing with TLC and how they're yeah. uh, how they're fighting for these rights. So TLC is the country's largest trans-led organization, and I think that that's particularly important given that oftentimes we see um, the broader LGBT movement focusing, I think, on trans leadership, but very little, oftentimes don't employ or sort of support the leadership of trans people. So um, we're mostly trans-led staff mm -hmm. um, and board and organization fighting for the rights of trans and gender nonconforming people around the United States. Um, you know, and I think it, we're in a moment in sort of political history and political activism where so many people thought, oh, the world is suddenly going to become a terrible place and no one will have rights and we need to do all that we can to sort of combat this like xenophobia and transphobia that's going to be thrust upon all of us. Um, and I think what's unique about TLC is that, like, while, yes, it certainly increased, I think, ahead of the, the election of Donald Trump, we were very clear that trans people lacked rights, mm. lacked access to sort of safety and liberation overall, and were working really tirelessly to advance the rights of trans and gender nonconforming people around the U.S., but that this was a moment to really mm, galvanize our own work a little bit deeper, but also the communities impacted by these sort of hateful and harmful policies that are, we're seeing put forward on a daily basis. So I understand that Transgender Law Center is also doing a story core. Are they doing some story archiving or they're getting a chance to uh, have uh, uh, collecting the storytelling of people who um, identify like that? I, look, I just saw on the website I found it. So uh, do you know anything about that or do you know a little bit about the, the information about that? or? I don't know specifically about that. Okay. What I can say is I think, um, you know, so much of our work is to document and capture the histories of yeah. trans people and their experiences and sort of their contributions yeah. to, to this work and to the sort of movement of trans people. Mm -hmm. um, because oftentimes those stories aren't told. I think oftentimes we're put in a narrative where the times where society is really focusing on trans people right now is when their rights are eliminated yeah. or when they're dead. And, you know, so much of our work advances this narrative that, like, trans people are alive and well and thriving and really, like, the leaders of their own future. And I think it's a moment to really um, share those stories and to share that, that work that's happening, you know, whether it's Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera in the 60s and 70s in New York City or whether it's the young trans kid in Arkansas who is facing you know, discrimination in their school and like mobilizing their community. Like these stories are worth noting um, to sort of lift up the ways that 
the trans community has grown over the decades, but also the ways that they resist on a continual basis. Yeah, I mean, it seems like these uh, telling the stories and then documenting the story is a way to build up empathy in the, uh, the listener and uh, thinking about the history of the movement of civil rights and uh, how uh, specifically the transgender movement has become politicized and uh, a little bit about, if you talk a little bit about kind of how you feel uh, or whether or not it's something new that's been politicized, you know, and, and I remember in the past five or six, even though it's a movement that's been going on for a number of years, it feels like in the past five or six years, it's been more and more politicized. You have more and more stories on the, on the internet that deal with it and uh, comment a little bit on that aspect. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that really like the gay liberation movement of like the late 60s was founded by and for trans people. Mm. Um, I think oftentimes trans people get erased from those narratives. Yeah. But I do think in a current moment, you know, where you've seen the increased visibility of trans people around the U.S. and, you know, and to some extent around the globe, you know, we have amazing advocates like Laverne Cox and Janet Mock to thank for that. And they've been very clear that it's not solely them that is responsible for this. And how do we lift up this like larger narrative of trans people sort of living their daily lives? And it might not mean that they're like, you know, organizing in their community, but it could mean that they're like working at a bank or that they could be working in television. And just what, what would it mean if we incorporated trans people in the day-to-day fabric of society instead of just this like, well, you're trans and you're over here and really bringing them to the center of the conversations. Yeah. Um, I do think in the LGB movement as a whole, there's been a much deeper conversation around like, how do you center the leadership of trans people, specifically trans people of color? But I think it's come out of this like it, devastating violence that's been happening for you know decades, but that yeah. we're I think more acutely aware of as a movement around trans people of color and specifically Black trans women. Yeah, um, and seems like there's a lot of uh, stories of violence against these this community, and it's so unfortunate to hear uh, on the news um, all these kinds of uh, questioning about. It's not, it's not emphasized because of that, you know, yeah. it's a very politicized, you know, so, um, yeah, talk a little bit more about kind of how you're on the, on the front to fight for these rights and if there's any specifics that you want to go into. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, TLC has a number of different sort of programmatic work that we do. We have our Positively Trans um, department, which works with HIV positive trans and gender nonconforming people. Mm-hmm. to really lift up the stories and the narratives uh, and, and talk about the stigma that people are facing who are trans and who are HIV positive. We have our legal department, which you know has a huge branch around um, impact litigation when trans people's rights have been discriminated against. And our newest program within that is our trans immigrant, immigrant defense effort, which, you know, as soon as Donald Trump was elected, we knew that our communities would be under attack, and we knew especially that trans immigrant communities would be under attack. And, you know, there's been a number of programs that have been sort of spun within that and connected to that, which is like our Black LGBT migrant program, which is started by a uh, staff member at TLC, really looking at the unique sort of stories around Black LGBT migrant populations and the struggles that they're facing, one, within the immigrant rights movement, then two, within the LGBT movement, and then within their own community of of Black and African migrants. Um, And then we have our organizing department, which is thinking more broadly around, like, how do we educate people around policy, but then how also do we teach them to organize? 
for their rights in their states, in their cities, in their country. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a, we launched a national training institute um, about two and a half, almost two years ago at this point. And depending on what legislation is happening um, on state levels or on federal level or where they're just generally facing anti-trans attacks, mm -hmm. we go into these local communities and, and work to leverage our resources to bring trans and gender non-conforming leaders together to train them just sort of on the basics of community organizing so they can affect change in their local communities. I think oftentimes larger national organizations are assumed to, to be the ones that have the answers for issues impacting people in their local areas, but we really approach it from a model of how do we share our resources with people in these rural areas and in under-resourced areas to advance sort of what they need in their own communities. You know, and one program that was really came from that initially and has continued to just grow and blossom is our um, TLC at Song program, which is a partnership with Southerners on New Ground, which is a Southern-based organizing hub for queer and trans Southerners. And thinking, how do we partner jointly to think about trans liberation and Southern liberation for those who are LGBT, but specifically trans and gender nonconforming Southerners? Okay, so the name of that program was TLC Song? That's song. song. Okay. So yeah, so song is, stands for Southerners on New Ground. Oh, Southern New Ground. Okay, good, good. And it helps uh, bring about, specifically in regards to the South, um, you know, the, the liberation or the education of the, uh, can you, was it again, the education of the people who are advocating for trans rights in, in the South? Yeah, and just more broadly, because I think part of it is there needs to be an acknowledgement that trans and gender nonconforming people historically have had less access to resources and sort of general equality. They lack protections um, on, on many state levels, but we're in a moment where their, their identities are being questioned greater than anyone else, and their rights are, are under extreme scrutiny and constant just sort of fight. Yeah. And I know that uh, recently, in the and I'm looking up some news articles and kind of keeping up to date on the rights of uh, trans uh, trans rights. Uh, New York City, I know, had recently passed a bill about uh, New York City schools uh, should now use the gen the gender pronoun uh, of the student, uh, and you know this kind of thing. These slowly, slowly, it seems like we're making progress and kind of advocating for and. Um, enforcing the rights of people to have their own self-determination. Yeah. So yeah. what would you say about uh, how, that, how that stands in regards to maybe on a nationwide level, uh, how trying to um, implement these kinds of, uh, um, reproduce these kinds of effects, you know? Reproduce these kinds of, yeah, yeah. How's, how's the outlook look? I mean, climate, yeah. sadly it doesn't look great. Yeah. I think it's really amazing when cities like New York or these major sort of liberal hubs are really uh -huh. leading the way to set model policy for yeah. how students can and should be treated. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, what we see around the U.S. is pretty blatant discrimination against students on a pretty regular basis. And yeah. oftentimes it's trans and gender nonconforming youth who are at the front lines of sort of some of these debates and fights for their rights. So, you know... Uh, do I think all schools should have things like that in place? Absolutely. And do mm -hmm. I think that within that, people should be trained to understand what that means fully? I mean, policy is truly a harm reduction to a much larger issue, but it also comes with making sure that people are equipped to understand what those policies mean. And oftentimes, 
people don't know what they mean, and they're still sort of denying students access to the things that they need access to. Mm. Um, you know, and, and the reality of it is, is a lot of times policies are set that, that it impacts students' lives without students being at the table. So it's really a moment to think about mobilizing with young people about what they do need in their lives. I mean, you look at what's happening in Florida right now with gun control, mm. it's like young people are leading that debate. And it's certainly far more impactful when young people are at the table saying what they need versus a bunch of people who aren't young people saying this is what young people need. Yeah, and as regards to mobilizing grassroots movements, uh, you know, for people listening who want to be involved or, or make their voice heard to advocate for trans rights, uh, you know, allies and things like that, um, what would, what would be your best advice to uh, allow listeners to, to be able to advocate for um, trans rights and such? I mean, I think the biggest thing is understanding that trans rights aren't always... Um, it's not always on trans people to advocate for them. Yeah, exactly. So their allies right. can really push yeah. for rights as well. Mm -hmm. And frankly, have a lot more ability to... to push back when there's dissent around these issues. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a number of organizations, small and large throughout the country, that people can sign up to sort of volunteer their time with. Um, we run a legal helpline that people can call if they've experienced discrimination as a trans person or they're in need of legal referrals. But you know, it's like we need to regularly train people to staff that because it's quite an undertaking and there's not many resources for people out there. So thinking about ways that you can donate your time, but also, you know, if you have resources, those resources to these organizations who are literally providing life-saving services to people is a great opportunity. I mean, an organization too that I think is really important to look up is um, Trans Justice Funding Project, which is a grassroots funding effort that works to fund trans and gender non-conforming leaders around the country who are working on smaller scale sizes. So not mm. these like bigger nonprofits, but more like grassroots organizing. Yeah. Who might not be eligible for funds from these bigger philanthropic funders. But, you know, there's like a group of trans people in their community who like want to run a support group to just get to know each other or they want to like have a community activity night. And, you know, funds like that allow them to do that. And I think we we cannot underestimate the power of just community building in this moment and what yeah. it means to, to meet other people who might be experiencing what we're experiencing. Yeah, I think one of the uh, key aspects is that we're starting to see in media more and more, you brought up uh, Laverne Cox, who's uh, um, you know very much key into bringing the media the, the stories of uh, trans identities uh, and characters and, and in media and, and movies and in the Netflix show Orange is New Black and such. Um, so is there anything that you'd recommend? Have uh, you watched anything that kind of really tells a, a real story of, uh, or gives a little bit of a clear perception of what it means to be transgender? Anything, anything you think about? I mean, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of amazing stuff out there. You know, uh -huh. Just last night, I think it was the world premiere, premiere of Happy Birthday, Marsha, which is okay. a film produced by uh, Raina Gossett and Sasha Wurzel, you know, and Raina is a, a is a prominent trans activist herself, art maker, um, you know, and she's telling a sort of new depiction of the life of Marsha P. Johnson, mm -hmm. you know, but I think part of it is like, we need to continue to push that these narratives be told, yeah. and I mean, I think that that's why some of the work that like Laverne and and these bigger celebrity trans people are doing is to make mm -hmm. sure that trans people are portraying trans people and that they're not portrayed in this like 
sort of hypersexualized, like deviant person. Like yeah. trans people are everywhere, literally everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're like the people working at the corner store, they're the people running businesses, they're the people working in nonprofits, they're just the same as everyone else. Mm-hmm. But how do we destigmatize those stories so they're seen as a little bit more human? Yeah. You know, and I think part of it is like how do we capture this the these narratives of people so people in 20 years can hear these narratives of like how much progress has been made for trans rights by trans people um you know and i think frankly to some extent there's been some really amazing stories and more mainstream non-trans sort of stories it's just Mm -hmm. like I don't know if anyone is like a Grey's Anatomy fan still, but I am. I've watched the show for years. And yeah. recently they had like a trans character sort of come out on the show. Uh-huh. And I was like really impressed that they had this storyline that was an affirming trans story because not for nothing, five, six years ago, they like most shows yeah. on mainstream television had incredibly transphobic lines that were said on multiple occasions. And I was like, oh, it's this learning moment where people are really taking the time to understand how you lift up trans people and tell healthy stories about their lives mm. and share it with the world. Yeah, it's so great. And I think that's solely solely with Transparent. And then, um, you know, I can think of a couple of examples of how, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, we had stuff like, you know, Silence of the Lambs, which had like a, you know, portrayed uh, these things in a very violent, as you were saying, you know, it, it just gave the impression a different impression that as I've gotten to become an adult to, to understand these issues, I think a lot of people are still kind of uh, caught in that 80s, uh, you know, like mentality of, you know, we saw a lot of the media at that time was very, um, you know, it was very stigmatized. And, and now slowly, slowly starting to see more and more realistic, more realistic or more, um, you know, true to life stories uh, coming out that, that at least lack of that empathy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, talk a little bit more, circle back a little bit about your own story about, uh, so as you came into, um, uh, the, the, you mentioned a little bit about how you came into the, the work and if you have any stories about, uh, what it, you know, um, uh, your, your own work in this field as a, you know, if you have any personal stories about kind of, uh, you were saying about, um, you know, building empathy and such. I mean, I guess I'm, what I can say is it's like interesting, like having done this work professionally for like well over a decade at this point and thinking Mm -hmm. about, well, yes, we've made immense progress and like we've, we've literally developed a whole new sector of work that people can be paid to do that 20 years ago wasn't the case. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's still, it, it, it's. It's not beyond me to understand that, like, right now, the states where we're facing ballot measures that are attacking trans people or potential ballot measures yeah. that are attacking trans people, one of them is my home state. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and earlier this, or late in 2017, TLC convened a, a group of trans and gender nonconforming leaders from Alaska and Montana, who, Alaska, um, in about two weeks, will have a vote on their ballot measure in the city of Anchorage. Um, that would limit trans people's access to bathrooms safely. Yeah. And then Montana, uh, you know, there a, a group of people are petitioning to have a ballot measure that would do the same thing in mm. the whole state. And to be from one of those states and think like, wow, I'm, I'm, a, I'm almost a 40-year-old adult and I've never seen this many trans people from the state that I'm from was like 
a pretty life-altering experience. Yeah. And I think for me, what's humbling is to see, you know, how many people have, have come before us to get us to where we are, mm -hmm. but still how much needs to be done. Yeah. You know, and these, these are states that have very little resources. These are states that don't have these large national nonprofits in them. These are small sort of grassroots shops that are partnering with like some of like the you know, state-based ACLU chapters to think about how do we protect the rights of trans people. And it's trans people who, like, they didn't get into this world as an organizer. They got into this world just as a person who happened to be trans, and now they're sort of coming out of the woodwork all over their states to, like, one, I think, risk a lot for themselves because that's not the life that they necessarily signed up to, but they're also like, my rights are under attack, mm -hmm. and we need to come together. So when we convened those people, there was about 20 folks from those two different states. It was really powerful to just see like what it meant for people to build relationships in that moment and to say like, I'm seen, I'm heard, like my ideas and my experience are valued and like, we're not gonna discount that regardless of what legislation people pass. Yeah, I, I always hear, it feels like, uh, it's so disappointing when you hear about this legislation and we try to think about, uh, I read some articles online where people are, um, you know, kind of questioning it, but then it seems like the, the politicians are very disconnected from their communities because, as you're saying, uh, the communities that they're serving are, you know, have many yeah. allies and many um, trans-identifying people. Uh, so, I guess, what would be the first step for people who want to, to write letters in? Or, I don't know, it's always confusing when it comes to grassroots movements, how to uh, make your voice heard to the, to the people or lawmakers, you know? Um, I think a huge thing right now is it pushing this out on social media so people uh -huh. are aware of it because I think oftentimes people don't know. You know, like yeah. a city like Anchorage, which is really far away from a lot of us. Yeah. They need their support right now. Mm -hmm. They need to lift this up. They need, you know, there's a number of people. TLC actually has some staff on the ground this week, like canvassing Anchorage and the city of Anchorage, asking people to vote no on Proposition 1 mm -hmm. in the dead of winter in Alaska. Yeah. So, you know... Like, people need donations, people need media coverage, people need just sort of moral support, and I think uplifting the work that's already happening there. You know, Montana, it's like people need to, again, understand and familiarize themselves with the issues there. That this is a state that is one of the largest states in the country, it's one of the least populated states in the country, and it has some of the least resources in the country compared to most states. Um, similarly, Massachusetts is facing a ballot measure. You know, and it, this is, it, you could name any state really in a given year and they're going to be facing something like this and why trans people continue to be in, under increased scrutiny by elected officials, by conservative right sort of funders and all mm. of these things. But I think we are doing ourselves a disservice when we sort of write off these smaller, le less populated rural areas. Like these areas are deeply important. Mm. And the trans people there are literally risking their lives to make sure that these things don't get passed. And I think it's on us, especially people in more urban populated areas with greater resources, to leverage our resources, to lift these stories up, and to say, like, trans people are here and they're fighting. Yeah. And I know that in Queens, for example, we have a story time that's uh, led by trans-identifying people. Um, you know, it's slowly a way to kind of... Um, yeah. I help children grow up and understand and have empathy for, um, you know, it's so important with this next generation to have, uh, you know, as you're saying about young people advocating to be able to understand and be, have empathy for um, trans issues and such. And, be, and as you're saying about uh, people who are in more liberal areas to uh, continue to advocate for 
uh, in the uh, you know the smaller communities that may not have as vocal uh, a, a community. So that's good. That's good. Um, so in regards to education, um, the and the training and such, you're talking a little bit about uh, education and uh, the training institute. So can you speak a little bit more about how? Um, how we can continue to educate people about the impact these bills and such have. Like, is it something that uh, uh, you were talking a little bit about social media and such and the social media presence? Um, yeah. I mean, social media is like a huge way in which people give and receive news. And I think yeah. sort of making sure that your networks are aware of what's happening. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I also think to some extent people are needing resources to be trained in how you do policy advocacy, how you defeat these measures. And I mean, I think that that's what's unique about a lot of what we are the support we're able to provide to local communities yeah. because we have an expertise on a national level and we can leverage our resources to go to these smaller communities that might not have a community center or sort of a policy advocacy shop and give people the tools they need to think about defeating these things themselves mm -hmm. um, and not sort of waiting for these larger national organizations to come in and do it for them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Good, good. Thank you so much. So as we start to wrap up the interview, um, just want to get a little bit more about uh, maybe something about in pop culture or uh, you talked a little bit about um, Happy Birthday Marsha and something else that uh, kind of connects with you coming up that uh, uh, really feels like it's advocating for you, uh, Laura and Cox would be another one. Anyone else that, that you can mention that uh, feel like is really advocating for trans rights? I mean, trans people, just yeah. literally everywhere. It's yeah. like whether they're the one trans person in their town or the 300th trans person in their town. Uh -huh. Like, I think we're in a moment where trans people are reclaiming sort of our narratives and saying, these are our stories to tell. Yeah. And we don't need someone to tell them for us. And yeah. we can inform your TV shows. We can be in your news stories and we can sort of be our authentic selves and live a life that is not only amazing but is like full of gifts to give to everyone yeah good good thanks so much and i think that in regards to uh you know the the difference between gender non-conforming uh you know that's something that can open up the boundaries for all people to not feel so confined to uh what we consider the criteria of gender or the you know all human beings can feel more liberated to uh understand themselves in regards to their own experience, directly their own experience, you know? So would you agree or what would you say about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, and I also think the ways that like young people, specifically trans, gender non-conforming, mm -hmm. non-binary youth have really pushed mm -hmm. society to think about how we think about conformity, the binary, and all mm -hmm. of the things. It's like young people are, are leading the way for us to expand our horizons and yeah. not think in such as like monolithic gender binary yeah and like what does it mean for people to self-determine and express their own gender in ways that feel authentic for them yeah that's I agree. pretty profound yeah i agree and i think that it's so great to think about uh you know not keeping ourselves in regards to oh this is male this is female but rather expressing ourselves as individual human beings so i really appreciate that yeah. uh, thank you so much yeah. all right thank you so much i'll close out the interview thank you so much for being here thank you thank you if you had to wear my shoes, you'd probably take them off too. That's 
and problems that I go through. Sometimes I can't sleep at night. If I hide my face, heaven would be. It wouldn't be the worst thing that I ever did. It's a hell of a world that we're living in. James 2.10, a sin is a sin. And I can believe there's an outcast in everybody's life, and I am her. There's a dark cloud in everybody's sunlight, and I am her. There's a shadow in everybody's front door, and I am her. This ends the interview portion of the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. You've just been listening to I Am Her by Shia Diamond. So now I'm uh, reading a little bit, just a quick uh, excerpt from Get Up, Stand Up, Uniting Populace, Energizing the Defeated and Battling the Corporate Elite by Bruce C. Levine. This is from the Healing from Battered People Syndrome and Corporatocracy Abuse. Whether one's abuser is a spouse, a parent, or the corporatocracy, there are parallels when it comes to how one can maintain enough strength to be able to free oneself when the opportunity presents itself, and then heal and attain even greater strength. This difficult process requires one, honesty that one is in an abusive relationship, two, self-forgiveness that one is in an abusive relationship, three, a sense of humor about one's predicament, and for the good luck of support and the wisdom to utilize this good luck. Then skipping ahead, uh, individual self-respect and empowerment. A population lacking what historian Lawrence Goodwin calls individual self-respect does not initiate democratic movements. Individuals without self-respect are more likely to passively accept 
the various hierarchical models bequeathed by the received culture, to use Goodwin's phraseology. Such hierarchical models um, include financial class and academic rank. Individual lacking in self-respect believes that they are inferior and they are not on the top of such hierarchies, and that they should not um, they should have less to say over social policies. When one lacks self-respect, it is more difficult to distinguish between these experts and uh, who help us gain exper expertise, self-respect, and self-confidence, and the elitists who lack any real expertise or wisdom, but who reduce self-respect and self-confidence. Individual self-respect means a regard for one's own worth, regardless of one's rank and imposed hierarchy. One can possess the best organizational strategies and tactics, but the individuals um, trying to organize lack self-respect. They will neither believe they deserve genuine democracy nor fight for it. And so it is the job of all who genuinely care about democracy to retain their own self-respect and help others do the same. While each of us has a responsibility to promote self-respect, there is a special responsibility for parents, teachers, psychologists, and others who have direct influence over young people. Integrity means taking action in accordance with one's belief. One cannot have real self-respect without integrity. Life often presents scenarios that cause conflict among our beliefs. For example, a vegetarian who also believes it's immoral to refuse food offered by a host is served meat by a host. Integrity means distinguishing which of our beliefs are more important than others and acting on our core values. If one maintains abusive relationships, then by one's actions, one is saying, I am not worthy of respect, and one's, uh, one's self-respect will diminish. One cannot maintain self-respect if one believes that one is incapable of acting on one's core beliefs. If one believes that one is powerless, one will not take action congruent with one's core values and will then lose integrity and self-respect. So self-respect is maintained by refusing to accept abuse and is maintained by taking actions on one's core values and beliefs. This ends the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, once again, I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and you can follow me on Facebook at VGR Nathan Poet. Also, I just want to say that Radio Free Brooklyn is a nonprofit organization that relies on support from listeners like you. So I encourage you to go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash donate or to sponsor this show at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com backslash Truth to Power. If you'd like to be a guest on the Truth to Power show, please write to TruthToPowerShow at gmail.com. There are many very enjoyable and um, fun broadcasts going on at Radio Free Brooklyn that you can listen in on for free at RadioFreeBrooklyn.com or the Radio Free Brooklyn app, including um, the show Done Sun, which airs every Saturday at 3 p.m. Dun Sun is a storytelling show hosted by a rotating cast of characters living inside Catherine Ann Dunn's head. And it's fun because I did an episode with them recently-ish. Uh, so you can check out when they post it, when uh, Catherine posts on the archives, you can check it out at readyforbrooklyn.com backslash Dun Sun. That's uh, D-U-N-N-S-U-N, so Dun Sun. So please check out their ongoing episodes every Saturday at 3 p.m. Finally, I just want to mention that Queens Library at Forest Hills will be featuring a different 
podcast from Radio Free Brooklyn and a special series of programs called Radio Free Brooklyn Presents. And if you're in the Queens area, Queens, New York City area, and would like to drop by the Forest Hills Library, please do so at 6 to 7.30 on Mondays from April 30th until May 21st. It's every Monday, 6 to 7.30. We'll be listening to a podcast uh, web series from Radio Free Brooklyn and then going to be discussing uh, with the host. So it's going to be a, a good program, and I hope you guys will support the library, Queens Library, and come on out for that program. Thanks so much. So now taking us out is going to be um, the song Warrior Heart by Canadian Mohawk singer Shawnee, who is using her new song to support the prevention of suicide among indigenous youth. This is from 2017, actually. Uh, proceeds from this uh, song will go towards We Matter, a national campaign designed to support indigenous youth struggling with suicidal thoughts and other hardships. The Truth to Power show airs every Thursday at 9 a.m. on readyforbrooklyn.com or you can download the apps for iPhone and Android at the App Store. So please enjoy uh, the final song. <laughs>